Jesus Christ, my living hope. I know some of you might be ready for a nap because you ate at the wrong time. Bear with me, but I think you're going to really want to hear what God's got to say out of this passage this morning. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking at a sermon by Paul, his actual first one recorded in Scripture. Acts chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 41. But to start it off, I want you to know that history has a point. I don't know about you. I enjoyed history classes, but you probably didn't. Most people don't. My son majored in it in college, so we get a good kick out of talking about history. But history has a point. And the fact is that history is God's story. Okay, from the very beginning to the very end, it'll be God's story. No matter what point in time you look at, God is involved. God is working. And God's allowing and directing what goes on in history. Regardless of other people's interpretation, and I know if you've been in a history class recently, there's a lot of revisionist history out there, but God put one major event in history that turned the entire world upside down and is still turning the world upside down. That one major event is why we're here today, why we're here this morning. So we're in Acts chapter 13, and this is during Paul and Barnabas' first missionary trip. Their very first missionary trip, the church at Antioch in, in Syria, sent them out. And we're picking up where Paul and Barnabas are in another Antioch town called Pisidian Antioch. And he's asked to preach a sermon. So let me read this passage to you, starting with verse 14. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul stood up, motioned with his hand, and said, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land, their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king. And testified about him, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, who do you think I am? I am not the one, but one is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. 
Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today have I become your father. As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that Luke recorded this sermon for us. It may not have been the first one Paul preached, but it is one that we've got in our Bibles to remind us where salvation came from, what you were doing in history, and what you will do someday in our history. We thank you so much for the truth that's in here. Help us to to glean something from it this morning, that we may live more out loud for you, more vocal for you, proclaiming the news that Paul talks about here, that there is forgiveness by a holy, righteous God through your Son. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Paul introduces Jesus here as the Savior God promised by the fact of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the Savior that the Jews have been looking for for centuries. And the good news of salvation, God promised, came to fulfillment in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look this morning at how did salvation come from the history, the history of Jesus. God tells us about salvation for human souls, and he tells us in kind of three stages of revelation. First stage of revelation is that salvation came from the Jews. Verses 14 through 25. I'm going to read those again because I I want you to understand Paul's trying to connect with them about what their history meant. And it even connects to us. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leader of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them 
their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now as John was completing his mission, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not the one, but one is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. A lot of this you've heard. If you've read your Gospels, you've heard these stories. You've heard, if you've read your Bible, you've heard these stories. You've heard all of these illustrations and these events that went on. So Paul's doing a missionary trip, him and Barnabas, and one of his first and most standard things is to go to the synagogue in the town. Whatever new town he enters, he goes to the synagogue. If there is one, there's a requirement of how many Jews they need in the town to actually form a synagogue. I think they need 70 Jewish men, or maybe it's 40 Jewish men, something like that. But this town had a synagogue. Pisidian Antioch had a big Jewish crowd in, in it. And they went in the synagogue, and the order of worship in a synagogue service was typically a reading of the scriptures of some sort, the Old Testament that we, we know as, and that's why they say the law and the prophets. And it was usually in Hebrew, so it was a right-to-left thing, um, really difficult to read. And they would read that. And then somebody would either kind of expound on the passage itself, kind of like explain it, and usually that was done from a sitting position. Or they would exhort the audience, and that was usually done from a standing position. So that's kind of what happened. And so Paul is asked, and maybe they knew who Paul was. He was a Pharisee, so they may have known who he was. <clears throat> I'm sure by now Paul's not wearing his typical Pharisee garb that he used to wear before he was converted. But they probably knew who he was because he was discipled by a very famous Pharisee teacher, Gamaliel. But they asked Paul, said, hey, you got a word for us? And boy, does Paul have a word for him. He stands up, motions with his hands to, for their attention, and he addresses the Jews and the God-fearing people in that audience. So understand that converts to Judaism happened all the time. And so he's addressing Gentiles who have converted to Judaism when he says God-fearing people in the service. We think of people like Cornelius that Peter had interactions with, those people who actually feared Yahweh, the God that Moses met at the burning bush. He makes this connection, and he points to God's choice. God chose Israel. God chose Abraham to move out of the pagan world, and he used them to bring the word and the plan of salvation into humanity. This was God's choice. Israel's not special. The Jews weren't special in their own likeness, in their own mind. God chose them, and God made that very clear. God chose Abraham out of a pagan people. Abraham worshipped pagan gods before God spoke to him and showed himself to him. And he put grace, lots of grace on him and Sarah and eventually brought about Isaac late in their years. And from Isaac and from Abraham and Sarah, a mighty nation was created. But Paul doesn't talk about that in this sermon. He, he assumes they all know that. He starts, and he, know, he knows they know the rest of this story. In Egypt, let's start in Egypt, he says. So in Egypt, the mighty arm of God freed them from slavery. They were there 
400 years in slavery. They had gone down there to get away from the famine. Joseph brought them down there. It was wonderful. They were loved by all the Egyptians. And then some, one day a Pharaoh rose up that didn't know Joseph, and he put them under slavery. But God raised them out with a mighty arm. And boy, that phrase that Paul uses, the mighty arm of God, it's got a lot of potential to it. If you think about the, the ten plagues and, and you think about the Red Sea parting and the destruction of the Egyptian army and you think about God protecting them and feeding them all throughout the wilderness, there's a lot there. But he saved them. And then he tolerated them and cared for them for 40 years as they wandered around the wilderness because they would not believe God's promise to give them the promised land. So I don't want you to miss this. The 450 years, that's a long time. None of us are approaching that age, I don't think. Our history of this country is even less than that. But it was 450 years from when they went down to Egypt before they actually wound up in the promised land that they had been promised. That's a long time to wait for a promise, but not to God. Now, if you add on the fact that it was 550 years before they came, out of, before they came into the promised land, or before they came, I'm sorry, before they came down to Egypt, where Abraham was actually promised the dirt that he was standing on, you're talking a thousand years before God fulfills this thing, before he brings this promised land thing to pass. But I want you to know something this morning, brothers and sisters. God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. He's never slow. He's always right on time. He doesn't own a wristwatch. He doesn't own a calendar. His timing is his timing. He's never slow in fulfilling his promises. We humans, we're just impatient and impetuous, okay? We, we got our time schedule to go by, but God does not go by our schedule. For example, Abraham and Hagar, that's a whole attempt for man to speed things up. But anyway, Paul's sermon continues on. He says, after that, he gave them judges to rule them. And you read the book of Judges in the Old Testament, you see some terrible judges, some, some people that come in and do some good things. There's Gideon, but then there's Samson. I mean, there's a lot of mess in there. Then Samuel shows up, the miracle baby again, another miracle baby. Hannah had, she was barren, and she prayed for a child, and God gave it to her. And Samuel grew up, and he was a great prophet, a wonderful prophet, a wonderful judge. And as Samuel was reaching the retirement age, basically death back then, um, they wanted a king. God gave them a king. They rejected God as king, and they wanted a king, human king, and so he gave them one, Saul. And if you've read the story, Saul was a terrible king. But I want you to notice how long he was king. For such a bad king, he sure did hang around for 40 years. That's the same time frame that they wandered around the wilderness because they wouldn't believe and go into the promised land. Interesting. God showed them what a great king would be like. And they gave, him, they gave them David, a man after God's own heart. That's a wonderful description. I wish I could have that on mine. To do God's will. He said, he will do everything I've asked. Now, don't get in your mind that David was perfect because David was not perfect. If you've read your Bible, you know David was not perfect, but he was humble. And he followed God repentantly. When he failed, when David failed, he confessed he repented. He went back to God and owned his sin. Read, read Psalms 30, 51 if you want to know. He would turn back and obey God rightly. David wasn't perfect, but when he messed up, he came running back to God. And David shows how a person following God would live. David gives them the example of what this looks like. 
that didn't stick, but there have been other people. Noah was the same way. Abraham was the same way. Um, Isaac, Jacob, all of them would turn back to God whenever they would mess up, whenever they would sin. They would come. Joseph did the same thing. They came back to God repentantly with humble hearts. And from David, this man that seeks after God's own heart, from David came Jesus. So Paul kind of skips a, a whole bunch of history, but this, this is the important part. A man that was seeking God's own heart, from his descendants came the man Jesus of Nazareth, and Paul declares to them the Savior, the Messiah, right there. Right here, Paul introduces to these displaced Jews, these Jews who hadn't even heard this yet, that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, that the Romans killed was their Messiah and is their Messiah. He introduces them. And this is the promised Messiah that's been promised since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That was a promise God made when he was punishing Adam and Eve and the serpent. He said, there will be someone coming who will win one day. He'll defeat everything, death and sin. Now, David's line, it actually got broken in, in, in the monarch line of kings of Israel during the exiles, when Babylon took over uh, Judah, and then all the way through after that, they were occupied by Persia, and then they were occupied by Greece, and then they were occupied by Rome. They'd been occupied by a, different, a lot of different countries. So the monarchy never came back to the throne. Yet in the descendant line of David, Jesus comes forth, born of a virgin, the one sent to bless all nations. That's, that's what Abraham was told. Out of your loins, out of your descendants, out of your, answer, your, your future progeny comes one who will bless all the nations. All the nations. Not just yours, all the nations. But first, before he gets to talk about Jesus, he wants to talk about John. So Paul introduces John the Baptist. John was pre Jesus was preceded by a herald, a proclaimer of truth. See, John was the first prophet that had shown up on the scene in over 400 years. They, the people loved him. They were like, oh my, we're getting a fresh word from God now. We're not having to rely on the Old Testament and the Pharisees and the Sadducees just interpreting the Bible the way they want. We're hearing a fresh word from God. He was the proclaimer of truth. He was foretold in Isaiah and Malachi that he would come before the Messiah. And by the way, John, was, John the baptizer was cousin to Jesus. He was a family member, a relative. And he came and he called for a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance, a sign that you admit that you are a sinner, that you need to be clean. Baptism was actually a, sim a symbol and, and used as a conversion tool from, from whatever religion you were to Judaism. It was already an accepted practice. And so for a Jew to think, I need to be baptized again, I'm a Jew. Or for anybody that had been converted to Judaism, it wasn't... It wasn't normal. It was like, why would I have to be baptized again? But John was calling for a baptism of repentance. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you need to be clean. But John wasn't the one. People begin to think that. Is he the Messiah? Hmm. He's, he's got strange clothes. He eats strange things, and he lives in strange places. But is he the Messiah? But he professed it. He knew what they were thinking. No, I'm not worthy to even untie my cousin's sandals, Okay. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus was the one foretold, John was the one foretold of to proclaim in the desolate and dark places of the wilderness that Jesus was coming, that there's hope coming, there's light on the horizon. And since the dawn of sin, since sin entered the human race in the Garden of Eden, 
history has marched toward this person, Jesus Christ, and this event that we celebrate today. It has been the purpose of history, the purpose of God's story. So what we celebrate today is greater than, than seas being parted, red seas being parted. It's greater than kingdoms falling. There was a lot of the, the, the people that they drove out of the promised land that just ran from them. They didn't even fight. Matter of fact, most of the battles that they had early on, the Jews never lost anybody in war. It's an amazing thing because God was going before them. But this is even greater than that. It's even greater than virgin births. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's redemption brings to us from the Jews an offer of salvation only found in Christ. Only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus even tells the Samaritan woman at the well that salvation comes from the Jews. This was not something we should be, wow, really? It's, it was a known fact. Now, the Samaritans wanted to debate that because they were half Jew. And they wanted to, to, to debate the whole thing of where we're supposed to worship. And you can go read that story in John chapter 4 of how she's just throwing excuse, excuse to Jesus. And Jesus is fielding them all and giving her truth. There are a lot of other things in our world today that propose salvation of some sort. Some sort of, some way of being made right or, or being made pure. Evolution. That thing's invented and people have turned it into a religion. And you've got to have more faith to believe in it, I think, than you do creation. But religions, all kinds of religions, man-made religions. Like I say, the Hindus have over 30, 300 million gods. Atheism, agnosticism, human philosophy, relativism. All of those things were created by man to make us feel right with whatever's out there or even just with our own conscience. Because we all do have a conscience. All those things were created to, to try to answer the question, why do we exist? Why are we here? But none of these bring a very tangible and realistic solution in history or purpose for our existence. They don't really answer the question. I mean, we came from sludge and sw swamp water? I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of nonsense. Even, even Judaism falls short because they stop short of Jesus Christ. They, they, they missed the fact that God's design purpose in history was to redeem mankind. And he was going to do it with a suffering servant, not some warrior king like they were thinking of in David. Humans declare some sort of theory. We, we come up with stuff to kind of explain or justify why we exist, why we're even here. But they fail to see the eternal view. They fail to see what's really the purpose, the kingdom of God. They can't answer the question, what's after this life? They try, but it's not logical and it doesn't make any sense. We need to remember, brothers and sisters, that God moves in his good time and his good purpose. Regardless of our calendar, regardless of what we want, regardless of what we think, regardless of how long it's been. Someone, someone asked me that question, well, it's been 2,000 years and he's not come back. Well, he didn't come for probably 4,000 plus years from when he was prophesied. And when he comes back, it'll be everlasting too late for those who don't believe. So God's a merciful God. Let's keep that in mind. God moves in his good time and his good purpose for his kingdom. Jesus lived. Jesus taught. Jesus was killed. He was buried. And he rose to bring the plan to the world. And that's a historical fact. There's no way to question it. 
Now, the question we all face, what does it mean for me? How will you apply this history to your life? All of human existence has meaning and purpose. But it only does if you look to God's Son. Everywhere else is a dead end. Or sometimes it's just a plunge off of a cliff. It's sad. The history exists. That's stage one. And so like it or not, God used the Jews. That's who he chose. He used the Jews to bring about his plan to make humanity righteous. He, he does that by using his son to do that. That's the, the second stage of revelation that we have here. Salvation was earned by Jesus, God incarnate. Let me read verses 26 through 37 for you again. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God. He didn't leave anybody out, did he? <laughs> Everybody in this room. It is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the Holy One, the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep was buried in his father with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Jesus is the reason we have salvation. Paul reminds them that they are followers of God. And like I said, he didn't leave anybody out. Everybody is followers of God. This truth and message of salvation is now theirs. It's theirs. They need to take ownership. Why? Because the residents of Jerusalem rejected it. See, they would look back to Jerusalem, even if they were a synagogue hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of miles away, they would look back to Jerusalem for interpretation or understanding or, or word on something. But the residents of Jerusalem rejected Jesus. They rejected him. And so now it's their news. Their, their news right here in, in remote Pisidian Antioch, a long way from Jerusalem. Because those guys in Jerusalem, they knew the prophecies. They read them every, every Sabbath. Most of them had it memorized, probably. They knew the whole Old Testament about the Messiah, but they were blind to Jesus. They were blind to Jesus. So they fulfilled all the prophecies about and against the Messiah by having Jesus killed. It's amazing how many prophecies that fulfilled. And God used their rebellion, their hypocrisy. He used their rebellion and hypocrisy and pride to bring full completion to the hundreds of of prophecies that are in Scripture. It's unbelievable how many prophecies he fulfilled just in the, in the simple act of the crucifixion, not to mention the ones that Jesus filled before the crucifixion. God used their rebellion. He used their obstinance to fulfill that. 
They even, they, they condemned Jesus without any sin. They couldn't find any evidence. They had no proof. All their witnesses turned out to be false witnesses. They were making up stuff. And by their obstinance, they proved that Jesus is the Messiah. That's, that's, the, that's the wonderful irony of it. By their obstinance, by their rejection of Jesus Christ and the prophecies that Jesus then fulfilled, they proved that Jesus was the Messiah. They even asked a Gentile, Pilate, to kill him. They even went that far, which is really unheard of, to, to give favor to a Gentile, someone especially occupying your land. But all these conditions they set in, were set in place by God. The type of, of, of death, crucifixion wasn't even around when some of these prophecies about Jesus was written, but these prophecies are crucifixion-specific. Things like piercing someone's side doesn't happen unless you're hanging from a cross. A bunch of other things like that. We could have a whole other sermon about that. The type, of cru- the type of death, the method, the crowd around there, what they were going to say, the soldiers, they were going to gamble over his clothes. Even Jesus' reaction to being crucified was prophesied, and he fulfilled it to the letter. And once he died, then more prophecies were met because they pulled him down from the cross and they buried him in a rich man's tomb. Most crucifixion victims in Roman times were thrown into a mass unmarked grave, just a big pile of bodies in a hole somewhere, and they eventually covered it up. But Jesus was saved from that. He was put in a rich man's tomb. That was prophesied. It's a statistical impossibility for one man to fulfill all these prophecies if you don't have some sort of supernatural effect. You don't have somebody doing this, and God was doing this. Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, and he earned what happened next. See, Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Jesus earned that because of his obedience. God raised Jesus. God rewarded Jesus' obedience by returning him to physical life. By this miracle, God tells Jesus, and he tells humanity, this is the point of my history. This is the point of my story, to make sinful souls right with me. That's the point. And when he raised him from the dead... After Jesus had died for our sins, when he raised him from the dead, it was a reward for Jesus because he obeyed. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. That's, a, that's a, 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 an error in some people's doctrines. His resurrection is undeniable by any sane mind, okay? And there's a, there's, I got mountains of books if you want to read on them about why the resurrection had to happen. He appeared to 500 people in Galilee. He appeared to 500 plus people. And all of those people went to their grave continuing to acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead. Under a tense persecution, death, I mean torture, they still would not recant the truth that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. I mean, that's the strongest evidence there is. Nobody dies for a lie. And 500 people weren't duped into this, okay? There's all kinds of different theories out there, but the point is is that you cannot deny this. And now Paul makes an application here to them. He says, they have to tell this great news of salvation. It's time to speak it. He even points to the fact that Jesus was rewarded here to be of the Son. Psalms 2, verse 7 is the one he quotes here. 
and says, you are my son, today I have become your father. This is what that means. God made Jesus his son, an incarnate son of God, seated at God's right hand. Now we know that the son in spirit existed from eternity past. That's, that's a given. You go to Genesis 1, you'll see that they get, got together, the three of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So he's existed as, as a spirit before. But now there is a human being sitting at the right hand of God Almighty. That's the honor God gave him. He now brings a human being and places him and honors him and sits him at the right hand of his throne, interceding for us, mediating for us that he died for. That's a, that should be wonderful news. It's, it's hard to remember, realize that because we think of, sometimes we think of Jesus as always been Jesus, you know. But no, he wasn't the body Jesus until he was born of Mary. And after God raised him from the dead, he makes him a son, a human son sitting right beside him in heaven. Which tells us we can sit up there too in our bodies. One day when we're risen from the, the grave, when he comes back, he is there, he is enjoying the eternal monarchy that was promised to David. Jesus is now that king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His, his exaltation to that place was even further confirmed in the fact that he never decayed. He never saw the corruption of the grave. He was there three days. N nothing about his body began to decompose. Decomposition starts the minute you die, by the way. None of his body started decomposing. Now, David did. See, and that was the thing. People kept expecting maybe David would rise from the, the grave. The Jews were kind of like, well, where's this Messiah going to come from? David died. He decayed. But Jesus never saw any of that. God preserved his physical body for heaven, where he sits right now at the right hand of God. Jesus earned our salvation our forgiveness, and his eternal station as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He earned that by his obedience. I mean, this is one of the most major and important differences between Christianity and any other religion. No other religion out there claims that God came in human form and died for us. They don't. They want you to do something. That's, all religions are based off of what you can do to make yourself worthy for God. We can't do anything. God Almighty God, the one true and living God, sent his divine son to earth. That's the difference. No other religion claims that. None. Islam, Hindu, Buddhist, they don't claim that. The Son of God came, lived, taught, submitted to death and burial to pay the debt we owed God. No other man-made God has ever offered to do that or even said they might do that or even said they did do that. And God raised Jesus from the, the dead in honor of Jesus' obedience and to show us redemption, to show us that the sacrifice did what it was supposed to do. It happened. There's no doubt or dispute that, can, that has dispelled it. Like I said, I've got mountains of books that People have tried to explain it away, and there's no other religion or theory or solution like this. Holy God reaches into human history to offer us a solution to our despair, 
to our eternal condemnation. He offers us that by sacrificing his son and raising him to life. That's, that's what the offer is. That's what we're celebrating today. And that is Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. I've said it many times. Christianity is not a religion. Religions are man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is God reaching down to save man, humans. That's Christianity, and that's what he did. It's a solution of grace, of grace, not works. We can't make ourselves worthy. It's a, it's a solution of redemption, merciful, merciful, like we sang at the resur- or we saw at the resurrection, the mercy tree. It's merciful redemption not condemnation. See, everything any other religion talks about is condemns you because you're not doing enough. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus earned that for all who would believe, which kind of brings us to stage three of, of the revelation here in his sermon. Now, you know where salvation originates, and you know how it came about through Jesus the next stage is for us. <laughs> it's for us to make a decision here. It's us for us to handle. It's salvation is offered by faith alone. Listen as Paul closes out his sermon in verses 38 through 41. After he said all of this stuff about Israel, about Jesus, about John the Baptist and David and all that stuff, he says in verse 38, Therefore, because of all that stuff, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. This is his invitation. This is Paul's invitation. It's the end of his sermon. He's he's giving them the two choices before them, the two choices that face them. God did all these things I've talked about in verses 16 through 37. Of course, he didn't have verses back then. He says, now it's your move. (laughs) Now it's your turn to make a decision. Forgiveness from God through Jesus sits before them to be considered, and all humanity needs it. There's not just some of us that need it. We all need it. We all are capable of heinous sins. But forgiveness from God through Jesus sits right here before you. That's what Paul tells them. And here's how you receive it. By faith. Believing. By faith. Believing in Jesus that he justifies your sins before God. There is no sin outside the blood of Jesus Christ. No sin that wants forgiveness, that wants to be forgiven, there is no sin that you cannot be forgiven of if you want forgiveness. Now, there were things that Moses' law could not absolve. Every time you saw, see a sin mentioned that that's results in the penalty of death, that's a sin that Moses' law could not absolve. There were, there were quite a few. But the fact is, is that Jesus' blood covers all sin, and every sin needs Jesus. No matter how bad we think it is, it can be forgiven. No matter what we've done. I mean, I, there's days I go, I can't believe he still loves me. I can't believe I can still go to heaven. Some of the stuff we've done, but none of it is outside the blood of Christ. If you believe, this forgiveness is comprehensive. It covers all past, present, and future sins. See, the, the sacrifices the Jews made only covered past sins. They were never sacrificing for the future. 
They were just sacrificing for the past. This forgiveness is comprehensive if, you go, yeah, there's the catch, right? If, it's not a catch. If you believe, if you believe that he died and he rose from the grave, that's what you have to, that's justification by faith. That's a primary doctrine of Christianity is justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what you have to believe, what he did. And Paul warns him, he says, beware. Don't act like these guys. If they scoff, if they mock, if they disbelieve it happened, or they don't believe they need it, they will regret it. And he pulls a passage that's out of Habakkuk. You've probably never read, <laughs> may never read Habakkuk, but you would never thought, out of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet, in the, a minor prophet, and he's, he's now prophesying to them that Babylon is coming to take over Judah. He is come, they are coming. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and, and defeat you and haul you off to exile. And Habakkuk is telling them, look, scoffers, you can marvel, but you're going to vanish away. Well, Paul is using this verse to talk to them and say, don't end up like those Jews, okay? that thought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon army wasn't coming. Because he did. You know it. It's in your history books. It's in our Bible. It's a, it's a lot of places. Nebuchadnezzar did raid them, and he did pillage them. And they spent 70 years in exile in Babylon before they got to come back to the promised land. But they still came back as slaves even then, under the governance of the Persians. Paul warns them not to spurn this word that he's giving them today okay those souls back then vanished away into eternal condemnation into hell because they wouldn't repent they wouldn't turn to god don't do the same thing they did he doesn't want that for these listeners he wants them to believe and be justified the choice is either heaven or hell that's the only two choices there are there's no in between there's no other way eternal life or eternal death you know, the thief on the cross, the one that got saved, by the way, there's two of them, he's a perfect example of justification by faith. He just realized after, after cussing and, and putting Jesus down and why don't you save us and help and all this other stuff, he was, was bad-mouthing Jesus just as much as the other guy. But he, some, something happened on the cross, and he realized, I deserve this. I did rob that person. I did commit those crimes. He hasn't done anything. Just remember me. That's all he said. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He prayed a prayer of remembrance. Just, I, I don't know what's going to happen next, but just remember me. And Jesus said, you'll be with me. Faith alone, in Christ alone, because of grace alone, saves. The tax collector in Luke chapter 18 that was praying in the temple and he was, he was not even wanting to approach the, 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 the altar or even the, the, the holy of holies. He just prayed, have mercy on me, God. And he went away justified. He's another great example of justification by faith. He knew he only had to ask. He had to believe. And his faith motivated him. So that's what's laid out before us today even. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done it. We've all broken one of God's laws, probably multiple ones. We all are sinners. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, eternal death. 
Everyone's going to die physically, but eternal death. Spending eternity in hell. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's an offer there. There's a gift there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of yourselves. It is not of works so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. A gift. You can't earn it. Gifts aren't earned. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, Jeremy read earlier, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that call doesn't mean just uttering Jesus, okay? The thief on the cross didn't just say Jesus' name and he got saved. He was calling on him. He was crying out to him. He knew he needed salvation from eternal condemnation. The tax collector, the same thing. Everyone who begs God, everyone who knows they need Jesus, who calls on him, will be saved. See, forgiveness is the first and foremost thing. That's what he tells them. You need to be forgiven. You need it. We all do. It's the first step in the process of salvation to know you need forgiveness. I can't, I can't lead you to Christ if you don't know you're lost. Without a cleansing, without an atonement, without a redemption, no soul will be saved from the eternal death and justification of a guilty soul. No remaining charge against the soul that trusts in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Nothing. Our, our record is wiped clean. Some people want to use an example, wrote up, write all your sins on a whiteboard or chalkboard and erase them. It's cleaner than that. He throws them as far as the east is from the west. He puts them in the bottom of the sea, and there's parts of the sea that's six miles deep. He puts them where they can't be reached by us, and we don't need to reach them, and that's justification by faith. That's what justification does. It is a complete exoneration, and it is all of grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If we think a sin is outside God's forgiveness, if you think that, you're wrong. Because then you're doubting the power of God. God's power is pretty good. He raised his son from the dead. He's pretty strong. If you think sin, any sin is outside God's forgiveness, it's not. God forgave David, <laughs> a murdering adulterer. I mean, it, it, that, that sin just stands out for us. He was also a coward. He was not a very good father. There was a lot of other things he wasn't great at, but he was a murdering adulterer. He forgave Paul, the giver of this sermon, who murderously persecuted the church. He had people killed who claimed to be followers of Christ before Jesus converted him on the road to Damascus. That's why when you read Paul's letters, you just you can tell he just doesn't believe that he's actually, he's like, I can't believe God would even save me. He would have mercy on me. So no matter what you've done, Jesus can forgive you and will. Jesus is the answer. He's the only source. So this morning, Paul's sermon, he shows us that the good news of salvation as a result of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he shows us that. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Jews. We may not like that, but that's where it comes from. But it's for everybody. It's for everybody. It doesn't leave anybody out. 
And Paul ended his sermon with a call to believe. Believe it. And he also left him with a warning. If you don't believe it, you may end up in hell. Then nothing else needs to be said. So let's pray about that right now. Let's take a time of silent prayer. And if you need to pray on, on this, if you need to come to the front and do it, please do. Let's have a time of silent prayer.